Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the With Chinese Characteristics podcast. I'm Natalie. And I'm Cherry. Together we talk about topics with Chinese characteristics, hence the name. This week is part two of our Top Peasant Rebellion series, where uh, we're going to talk about four more peasant rebellions. Cherry and I were actually talking earlier. If you're not familiar, if you didn't listen to the first one, China has a long history. It has a lot of dynasties. Its most famous landmark is the Great Wall. And that might lead you to assume that most threats from China come from without, when in reality, most dynasties, biggest threat they ever face is internally. And it's either coups, dynastic struggles, or very commonly peasant rebellions. If the people feel like the emperor is doing a bad job, or even if they're just unhappy, right? They might not even really know who the emperor is. But if uh, they're starving, they're hungry, they don't feel like they're being protected, they form bandits, yeah. they form armies, they rally behind figureheads and start heading towards wherever the capital is. Overturn the dynasty and start a new one. Right, exactly. Okay, so what are our uh, four more peasant rebellions? Well, so the first one that we're bringing to you today <laughs> is Da Zexiang Uprising. And Dazhexiang is a place in China. What part of China is that in? Right in the middle. Okay, interesting. Roughly. The heartland? <laughs> Inland. <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm not in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> to, the, to the exact location. Yeah. It is in the Anhui province. Okay. So it was the first recorded peasant rebellion at a scale in Chinese history. It happened in 209 BCE and it lasted only three months. Okay. But we are talking about it because in a way it is very significant and it is the first recorded peasant rebellion in Chinese history. So before or after the first recorded dynasty? It almost ended the first recorded so dynasty. So the guy who built the Great Wall? Following the death of Qin Shi Huang, the guy who built the wall, okay. who and, started the wall. And this is confusing for me, but there's two <laughs> dynasties that sound like Qing dynasty in China. Say them right next to each other. Say the two. Qing. Qing. <laughs> okay, so very different. So Qing is the Manchurians. Manchurians. It's the colonialism one. The colonialism one. It's <laughs> on the receiving end of the colonialism, and then the Qing is the first dynasty. Good job. So first dynasty, first peasant rebellion. Yeah, the uprising started and was named by the location in Da Zexiang, which translates to Big Swamp Village. Mm -hmm. Not a very significant city. I'm, By I'm any sure means. there's probably lots of cities called that. Big swamp cities? Yeah, yeah, right? Big lake cities, small lake cities. Yeah. So Chen Sheng and Wu Guang are the two leaders of the movement okay. of the rebellion. They were part of this group of 900 commoner soldiers who were sent north to a city called Yuyang as part of the government official posting for the military. Okay, because one of the things that Xin, 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 Xin Shi Huang, Xin Shi Huang, one of the things that he was famous for, right? We talked about in the Great Wall episode, uh, mass mobilizations, lots of construction, lots of moving troops around everywhere. Lots of enlisting. These people were told to go move to this new area. Yes. And the government official in charge picked these two to be managing the other commoners. They're like the leaders now. Okay. However, their trip was delayed due to extreme weather rainstorm and flooding mm -hmm. yeah you can see yeah. the cars are stacking right <laughs> yeah. now uh so their trick was delayed the harsh Qing laws at the time was that anyone late to show up for government slash military posting would be executed regardless of the nature of the delay okay no excuses chen sheng and wu guang realized that they could never make it on time and they decided <laughs> to do rebel against the government instead <laughs> can you blame them the chinese imperial punishments for things are so comically harsh. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, somebody, you know... Um, didn't, didn't want their head shaved. Yes, or, or didn't bow right to some governor, and then the entire village gets executed. Yeah. So it's like, you know what I mean? You might as well rebel. Like, mm -hmm. they can't do anything worse to you. Mm -hmm. After they made the decision to do this, they didn't start right away, however. They um, strategized. What they did was that they wrote the words Chen Sheng as king on a piece of cloth and stuffed it in a fish which would later be cooked by another fellow peasant soldier who, quote-unquote, discovered the cloth and thought it was a sign from heaven. Wait, wait, wait. You can't just declare yourself emperor because it doesn't work like that, you right? You need a sign. Yeah, you need a sign that says you're emperor. Yeah. Okay. So they're going to manufacture the sign. And <laughs> um, 
And then late at night, they started a bonfire at an abandoned temple nearby. They hid in the darkness and shouted with a high-pitched voice. They were trying to mimic the voice of a fox, apparently. Foxes Go- don't speak. Well, if they did, they were speaking a high-pitched voice. They thought. <laughs> okay. Glory to the great kingdom of Chu. Chen Sheng will be king. Chu, the kingdom, was one of the kingdoms that was united by Qing Shi Huang. Yeah. Well, so, wait, wait, what about the other guy, though? The other guy doesn't get to be in The other guy was like a second. You've got Mao and you got Zhou Enlai. Exactly. Okay. So, <laughs> so Chen Sheng was declared king of the former kingdom of Chu by, I guess, the fox and his men. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they started um, a wave of peasant uprisings all over the country. And in a few months, they grew to around 10,000 men, composed mostly of discontent peasants. And 10,000 men back then is a big number. Qing Shi Huang was not a popular emperor. No. Right? Famously, no. Famously unpopular. Yeah. The problem of this peasant rebellion was that even though they grew very fast, this is a common theme with Chinese peasant rebellions. Um, which is that on the battlefield, they were generally not really a match for the professional soldiers uh, that they, you know, waged the war against. Yeah. And there was also usually a lot of infighting among the rebel factions. Because if one thing about a peasant rebellion that is common, it's decentralized. Yeah. And it just burns through China like a wildfire. But yeah. that means you have lots of different factions, lots of different groups, lots of different leaders. And... Um, they will fight amongst themselves to decide who is going to be the emperor. They can all be the emperor. Yeah. They can only be one China. So Wu Guang, the um, the right-hand man, mm-hmm. was killed as a result of the this infighting okay. between the rebels. And Chen Sheng was betrayed by one of his own guards and then assassinated. Oh, okay. So, so I guess the fox was wrong. By, describing, by recording all these manufactured signs mm-hmm. uh, in a way... Um, the historians pointed out that this was not meant to be because the signs are clearly fake. Yeah. Well, Chinese histories and Chinese myths, they love, I mean, everybody loves this, but they love trickery, right? That's always trickery and subterfuge and little techniques and tricks. So it's interesting that, yeah, only the fake ones, they have them do tricks. But the real ones, no, those are real. You just ignore the, you either don't say there was any tricks. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's, it goes back to the self-fulfilling prophecy that we kept talking about last, in the last episode, mm-hmm. where if the rebellion had failed, then of course they didn't have the mandate of the heaven. Yeah. And so of it must course have the signs fa- were fake. Yeah. yeah. But if it did succeed, mm-hmm. then either the signs are real or history, historians go back and make up some signs. Maybe, right? <laughs> yeah. So Chen Sheng and Wu Guang died really quickly after there was, they started the rebellion. Mm-hmm. However, they set up the example that was to be followed by the others, and the Qin dynasty ended pretty soon after. From infighting, basically, right? From the infighting of the court. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was the first peasant rebellion we're bringing to you today. So it's interesting, though, because it's like, you know, obviously Chinese people and Chinese kingdoms existed for thousands of years before the first dynasty. But it's like, and they had walls, right? And they had rebellions, and they had all these things. Yeah, I'm sure. But, but that you know, was the first. But it doesn't count, right? I guess no, until this the first dynasty. In a way, we claim that, yeah, China has 5,000 years of history. But Qing, you know, the Qin dynasty, the Qin dynasty. Yeah. Uh, it was really the first one that united China. So do we really have a 5,000 year history? <laughs> or did people just live there for? So that was the first one. Okay. And the second one we are going to talk about today is White Lotus Rebellion. And White Lotus is a secret society that keeps coming up in our conversation. And in the first part of our Top Chinese Peasant Rebellion episodes, we talked about how the White Lotus was an important part of the movement against the Yuan Dynasty. The Mongol Dynasty. The Mongol Dynasty. I guess you could call it that. Yeah, Kublai Um, Khan. The Peasant Rebellion they were partially responsible back then was called the Red Turban Rebellion. Mm Mm-hmm. And the White Lotus Society was really long-lived, in a way. We fast forward a few hundred years later, after the Red Turban Rebellion, during the Qing Dynasty, they're still making troubles. The White Lotus Society. The White Lotus Society. So 400 years later, 300 years later. Mm -hmm. Still there. And finally, there was an official uprising against the Qing Dynasty that was named after the White Lotus. Okay. Hence the White Lotus Rebellion. So this happened in 1796, 
1804. There's going to be a lot more records that we can yeah. find. Generally, you think they're more reliable mm-hmm. instead of just like an urban myth. Um, instead of somebody writing about something that happened 400 years earlier. So near the end of the 17th century, there was a huge wave of migration from other areas of China to the mountainous region between Sichuan, Hubei, and Shanxi province. Okay. That together with the growth of local population, the area was getting crowded, work opportunities were scarce, poverty was spreading, and as always, corruption was a common uh, scene in the local government. Mm-hmm. Finally, all things come to a head. A rebellion was started by impoverished farmers and migrant workers as I was surprised by this, as a tax protest led by the White Lotus Society. Okay. Yeah. And so they had specific callings. Um, they, of course, advocated for the restoration of the previous Ming Dynasty and a better future for the followers. And this, you know, this seems to be a thing because obviously a lot of these peasant rebellions go, oh, we want the old times to be back, you know, yeah. make China great again. And <laughs> Well, because they don't, I mean, none of them live through it. They just assume it was better, right? Yeah. And if you want to have an official backing of your rebellion, what better ones than the ones that did already have the mandate of the heaven? At least once. Yeah, and the White Lotus is, I mean, they essentially are responsible for founding the Song, or the Ming Dynasty. The Ming Dynasty, yeah. They had a heavy hand, I think. Although, as most of these peasant rebellions, it was decentralized and guerrilla warfare was very much a theme of it, Mm -hmm. the movement spread across several provinces in China and it was a real headache for the Qing Dynasty. Mm. At first, the Qing Dynasty didn't have a lot of local military forces in these regions, actually. The local government was also poor, hence why they were collecting high taxes. And the, the Manchu, the Qing, they didn't like to have uh, local armies and stuff, right? Not really. And they kept their forces. I mean, most dynasties did this, like near the capital, yeah. up north. So they had to send in the imperial forces from mm. far away. And it was a very slow start on the government's part. So they sort of let it just happen for a little while. A few years later, the new emperor, Jiaqing Emperor, ordered a more vigorous effort to suppress the rebellion. Okay. Eventually, the movement was quashed. The suppression effort was quite costly for the Qing Dynasty. Obviously, this happened in the midst of the Qing Dynasty. It's hard to argue that it led to the end of the Qing Dynasty, but the Qing Dynasty had a pretty good 200 years before that. And um, many historians see this as sort of a turning point of Qing Dynasty Mm. from its peak. Because it went from that to like Taiping to Opium Wars. I listened to a lecture once that basically was like, you know, you look back at the start of the Qing Dynasty Mm -hmm. and they're basically Europeans are coming. And if Portuguese try anything, they get blasted. But essentially, Qing Dynasty was almost like too well organized. There wasn't really anybody to fight. And right for like <laughs> yeah. 200 years, it was just like so peaceful yeah. and so in control that they kind of lost that ability, right? Yeah, they've gone soft. Yeah. The one thing that I took from this was that the White Lotus Society, as a secret society, mm-hmm. that actually, you know, even though they had contributed to the founding of the Ming Dynasty, the first Ming Emperor didn't really like them all that much afterwards. And he really tried to keep his distance because he had to um, link himself to the Confucian scholars. Yeah. Right? But they still... And Ming and the White Lotus Society is what? Taoist? It's Taoist, basically. Okay. I think they had like uh, like free love and stuff, the White Lotus. Oh, well, that must be frowned upon by the Confucian (laughs) scholars, for sure. Zero love. Zero love. Except love for father your father and, and your father and son. Those are the only two real types of love. Exactly. Everything else is just and your love. grandfather and your grandfather yeah. <laughs> and the emperor. Yeah, that's the people. It's a short list of people that you could love. <laughs> yes. So, anyways, my point being that even though they were sort of surprised and the emperor really didn't want to have any association with them, mm-hmm. they still yet survived and you know, four hundred years later, causing all these trouble. And so, I just think you know, there's a lot of civil organizations back then. Mm-hmm. I think, um, even though we just don't hear about them enough, because obviously now there's a narrative of the strong central government, um, maybe not strong, but like a stable central government, China being the stable country, yeah. like Europe, divided by many smaller countries, China just sort of focused well, it's within. Sort of, it's sort of, um, it sort of reminds me of, I mean, it's the same thing that happened with Rome, which is you have Rome and you have such strong control yeah. and you have such safety mm-hmm. within Rome that essentially you just push all the armies out to the provinces yeah. and 
and uh, everything is so interconnected yeah. that if there's any interruption mm-hmm. in the empire, nothing is self-sufficient anymore. Nothing can protect itself. Yeah. Because you have, I mean, it's like, you know, this, you know, if you're the city of, you know, Phoenix, Arizona or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like if there's no federal government, if there's no state government, like if you get invaded, like, yeah. you know, you don't have an army. Yeah. Yeah. But that narrative, you know, obviously it's not as simple as that. Yeah. If you look at the survival of the White Lotus Society yes. and the troubles they get up to. <laughs> but the other thing that's interesting, though, is that um, a lot of the earlier peasant rebellions, and this might just be because they're further away so they're kind of it's it's more difficult to understand what they were doing mm. but it's almost like it, it, they are rather faceless right it's like oh the peasants just get mad and they just start like being bandits and burning things and forming mobs and yeah but this is like oh they were mad about taxes <laughs> yeah i know right <laughs> like we know what they were upset about mm-hmm. right and you know they have they have a voice that's not just like mob with the chinese equivalent of pitchforks and torches it kind of gives them a little bit more um agency I guess, yeah agency and humanity yeah exactly so that's the white lotus rebellion okay and that was crushed too that was crushed too okay so these peasant rebellions are having less success than i it. know so the third one i want to talk about mm-hmm. is yellow turban rebellion okay here we go <laughs> so this is probably I'd say these days, mm-hmm. it, well, for anybody who plays video games, these are, <laughs> this is, pro- or this is probably the most famous Chinese rebellion because. Is it? Well, because it's in Dynasty Warriors. It's in Three okay. Kingdoms. In pop culture. Yeah, in pop culture. It's in Total War Three Kingdoms, mm. right? They're yeah. the kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to mention those games later. Oh, are you? Okay, let's, okay. So the Yellow Turban Rebellion, and we like to name our rebellions and wave our flags under a color. There was the there was the Red Turban Rebellion. We always say everything is a something turban rebellion. Well, not everything, but but really, it's not like an uh, Indian turban or a Sikh turban, right? It's I think it more means like almost like a scarf. Just it's just a headscarf. On the head. Yeah, yeah, like a piece of cloth tied to person's and then head. you will have the flag that's the same color yeah flag is the same color so don't think of it like you know that they're all wearing like you how know, western centric of that turbans of that disclaimer but, you no know, one was thinking that just think of it like that's the type of cloth they're wearing yeah, yeah. the yellow headscarf yes rebellion yes huangjing Qi. the yellow turban rebellion was a peasant rebellion that happened near the end of the east han dynasty mm-hmm it was known as the opening event of the historical novel Romance of the Three Kingdom, like Natalie mentioned, and it was not just a fictional story. It did happen. Just a disclaimer. Mm. Because it is so highly dra- dramatized um, in pop culture today. Yeah. So it started in 184 AD, and the main movement ended within a year. I guess I'm giving it away. But however... Pockets of resistances in a guerrilla warfare style continued. Eventually, it took 21 years until the uprising was completely ended in 205 AD. Okay, and by the end of which, that dynasty was basically gone, burnt out. Ushers in the the, the, the civil stage war, of the Three Kingdom. Yeah. yeah. What was happening around this time? You already know it. Famine, floods. <laughs> Famine, yeah. natural disaster, bandits. Yeah, the checklist. <laughs> Bring it out. So this was a time when a famine forced many farmers and former military settlers in the north to migrate down south, okay. seeking economic opportunities. Oh, and, can I mention? So mm-hmm. military settlers, um, they're, they're a very common thing, not just in China, but in other ancient empires. Mm-hmm. And basically what you do is you have a rural area that you want to add to the empire, but no one lives there. So you just get groups of people and you say, you can live there, yeah. but you have to defend it. And if we call on you, you have to send somebody like Mulan style. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, a Chinese style of colonization. Yes. And down south, where they moved to, landowners took advantage of the labor surplus and started accumulating wealth. <laughs> That's how Rome <laughs> fell too, is like basically you had refugees and yeah. they just exploited them until they got fed up with it so there were also constant smaller floods along the lower course of the yellow river for as much as we call the yellow river china's mother river Mm -hmm. i really i've just read so many stories (laughs) of the yellow river gives and it takes yeah i know right furthermore high taxes were collected to pay for military expenditures and projects such as building fortifications along the silk road 
okay. happening around this time. Internally, it wasn't going so well for the court mm-hmm. either. This was a time of powerful eunuchs, allegedly. And let me put a disclaimer here. Everybody blames everything on I the know. eunuchs. And the eunuchs, they never get names. They don't, they don't <laughs> have names. You know, if there's, a, if there's a general who staged a coup, you know their name. Do you know why you the, can always blame the eunuchs <laughs> yeah? in Confucian China? Why? Because they don't have kids. I know. So, so, <laughs> no one's there to no say. No one's there to defend the eunuchs. No, to defend their honors. Kids. Yeah. So yeah, in, every in the in the in the eyes of the Confucian scholars yeah. or and everyone else, they don't have honor already. But anyway, yeah. eunuchs are always the yeah the villain. Yeah. So this is why I said allegedly because <laughs> even if they're responsible, you created them. So <laughs> when I say you, I mean the the. the yes. Not you, the listener. Not the listener. <laughs> I'm taking my, my anger out on a, yeah. for inequality out on a, the empress. Yeah. Um, the government was widely regarded as corrupt and incapable. Mm. Against this backdrop, the famines and the floods were seen as an indication that the emperor at this time was emperor of Ling, of Han, Han Ling Di, has lost his mandate of heaven. Mm-hmm. And it's like a episodic TV show. Well, it is, Every right? episode. If so, you haven't seen it, everybody on YouTube, you can. there's a English subtitles for... There's a 2010 Chinese version of uh, Three Kingdoms. It's really good. It's like Game of Thrones. I know. It's still the gift that keeps on giving today. <laughs> yeah. So many games are made out of it. So many TV shows. Yeah. Movies. Um, so against the backdrop of these events comes our hero characters, the Zhang brothers. Okay, and there three of them are named Zhang Jiao, Zhang Liang, and Zhang Bao. They founded a Taoist religion movement, religious movement, mm-hmm. considered themselves followers of the way of supreme peace. And um, one of them, the oldest brother, I believe, were given a sacred book called The Crucial Keys to the Way of Peace. Um, the Chinese name is Taiping Yao Shu, and they were preaching the principles of equal rights of all people and equal distribution of land. Well, that's not that's not going to go over well. Uh uh-uh. uh. Well, it goes. Well, <laughs> it's going to go over well with the people. With the peasants. Yeah, with the peasants. <laughs> yeah. They even had a slogan. Okay, and the Chinese is "Cang Tian Yi Si, Huang Tian Dang Li, Sui Zai Jia Zi, Tian Xia Da Ji." And the translation is, "The blue sky, or you know, the heaven." meaning the Han Dynasty, mm-hmm. um, has already perished. The yellow sky, meaning the rebellion, mm-hmm. will soon rise. <laughs> In this year of Jiazi, let there be prosperity throughout the world. So, <laughs> you know, that would be a pr- pretty popular message to the um, discontent peasants. Well, and also the, the, the good thing about a rebellion like this is you throw yourself in behind a regular peasant rebellion and dynastic struggle, mm-hmm. you know, like... The landlords are still going to be landlords. You're not really necessarily like somebody new is going to be the emperor, but the power structure is going to stay in place. Yeah. But if you just overthrow the whole everything and redistribute the land, I mean, that's that that's, you're better off. They had the vision. Yeah. With that said, even though this was by all means a religious movement, but this was, you know, with the undertone that there needs to be universal equality and equal rights to, I guess, land ownership in this case. Mm-hmm. And it was in a more washed down format, you know, very acceptable to the masses. And um, the brothers traveled around and treated patients with faith healing. But really, it was some Chinese medicine. Yeah. And um, to Which pra- back then is just medicine. It, yeah. Today we call it the Chinese medicine. <laughs> and to practice the religion, you do all the regular things. You, you pray. You fast sometimes. Mm-hmm. You um, have ceremonies of music and chanting, and you burn incense. Um, you worship a number of gods. The highest one is Taiping Pingjun, basically Laozi, an ancient Chinese philosopher, the founder of Taoism. Mm. So this was a very down to the earth sort of religion. Okay. And the religious movement gave the brothers an opportunity to build a widespread grassroots organization, just okay. like the churches, right? Mm-hmm. You build all these factions that are actually under your management and in 184 AD the brothers thought it was time to um, also it's probably bad luck in China to kill priests I mean I think it's bad luck everywhere to kill priests yeah I know well (laughs) but I mean it's like okay if you're a rebellion if you're a rebel right yeah it's like if you're a priest you have an excuse to travel around Right, you're like, oh, I'm a traveling priest. Yeah, that's a thing in China, right? You have well, not special... what they thought in the Boxer Rebellion, but no, not in the Boxer Rebellion. 
priests will get getting killed left and right. Well, those are those are Western priests. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I mean like Taoists. Okay. Yeah, monks and stuff. Yes. So in 184 AD, the brothers thought it was time to start start a rebellion. They got the ball rolling by secretly coordinating with the branches of the organization um, at different cities, and they set a date of March 5th for everyone to break out their local rebellion and wave the flag of the red, you know, the red flag. Um, oh, interesting. However, just like, again, I know I sound like I'm repeating myself, mm-hmm. but, you know, this, just, this, is, this is the history. I didn't <laughs> write it. Betrayal is not uncommon in these situations. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the repeating Repeating story. One of their followers snitched on them, and the brothers were forced to start the rebellion a month earlier. Mm. Within a month, seven provinces, 28 counties all over China saw the breakouts of the rebellion. And for a short while there, it really looked like they were unstoppable. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the movement was quashed in eight months, November the same year. Big Thunder, tiny rank drops. <laughs> is what I wrote here. There were some setbacks that they that had led to the end of the short-lived rebellion. Okay. First, they did have an underprepared early start because of a snitch. Yeah. And especially that they couldn't take Luoyang, the capital city at the time, which was their target, mm. um, on day one. So, which was the first city the government cleaned out after they got the report the rebellion <laughs> was underway. They're like, kill all the priests. <laughs> and they did lose some big leaders, apparently. So they couldn't take the capital. Mm like they had planned to, and the government did their job, you know? Um, and it was o- not only the official army at the time that the Yellow Turbans had to fight. Do you want to guess who they had else they had to fight? Warlords. Landowners. Well, oh, I landowners, guess. okay. <laughs> there was a lot of local militias. I guess the combination of landowners who became warlords, right? Yeah, right. So there was a lot of local militias that were happy to take a paycheck from the government um, and cause these equal rights land reformers some trouble. <laughs> They're trying to touch someone's cake. Yeah. But regardless, the army of the Han Dynasty was not as weak as the peasants probably had hoped that they would Mm. be. Even today, you might have heard of some of the names of the famous generals that led the Han army that had suppressed this um, rebellion. Cao Cao, the founder of one of the three kingdoms, was among them. Cao Cao. (laughs) Another name, Huang Fu Song. Um, If you play the three kingdoms games, you would be playing them probably. Okay. And um, But even though the Yellow Turban Rebellion had ended, mm-hmm. one of these legacies is that these generals, these famous generals that had fought them yeah. on behalf of the Han Dynasty mm-hmm. grew strong, right? And this is what you don't want. You don't want warlords to have too much power. Yeah. So that um, had, I think, more than any of the claims that we're making, he- making of the other rebellions, like, oh, this had led to the end of the dynasty, right? Yeah. This had contributed. This had definitely contributed to the end of the Han Dynasty, um, because you know where what these you know where these these people went. You see how they grew stronger and stronger, yeah. and some of them have you know more relationship in the court. But without this rebellion, they wouldn't have had the chance probably to grow out into these warlords. And um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of the, the I think it's Winston Churchill who said, "Never let a good crisis go to waste." Yeah, and really, it's like uh, even if the rebellions are ultimately unsuccessful mm-hmm. or you know they don't accomplish that much, what they do accomplish is you know stir the pot stir the pot right and now i'm not gathering an army to attack the capital i'm just worried about bandits you know like (laughs) i'm just here to protect the emperor the people you know like it it gives a lot of cover for people to uh make moves or play politics play politics yeah yeah. so that was the three rebellions i have okay so now i finally have one i have the greatest perhaps perhaps the greatest, the most successful, perhaps the final peasant rebellion in Chinese history. So and that, far. And that will to be, date. To date. Yeah. And that would be Mao Zedong and the People's Liberation Army. <laughs> um, I wonder if that's going to be a controversial opinion that it, it is a peasant rebellion or not. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, uh, so we're going to get into this. So, sure. Okay. So Marx in the 1850s, Marx and Engels... They um, laid out what they viewed as communism. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, they describe it as a historical force, as, you know, something that is happening and will happen. But that's just where the history, the wave of the history is going. Yes. Yeah. And but also they describe it. But in 
as time goes on, they do kind of advocate for it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, you know, they're not just uh, passive observers. Mm. And basically, um, what what the Communist Manifesto says in very broad sense is that have capital- you actually read the Communist Manifesto? I have not in many years. I read it when I was in high school as an angsty teenager. But oh. since then, I've been on the internet. So that <laughs> okay. basically makes me a communist, uh, an expert on communism. But, <laughs> but, but basically, you know, it's like, okay, capital accumulates mm. in certain groups of people. They own literally everything. Yeah. And you have people who own literally everything. And you have people who have to just the only thing they can sell is their labor. Proletarians. Yes. And eventually they realize... Why should we be doing this? Yeah. And then they form a rebellion and they take over. And you, know, you get the idea. So after the initial communist Soviet revolution in Russia, yeah. agitators immediately began promoting communism abroad, both for ideological and practical reasons. Hmm. So this is a similar situation to the French Revolution and also the American Revolution, which both were considered equally as radical in okay. their day or even the English Civil War which is all of the countries around Russia thought, oh, we got to nip this in the bud, right? We got it. We can't, if we can't have this nation here with this radically anti-capitalist message, it's going to cause problems. And on the other hand, the new Soviet Union thought we can't have all these capitalist nations around us. It's a zero-sum game. It's a zero-sum game for our own defense. We need to promote communism. Yeah. Right. And because basically, uh, I mean, the same mentality lasted until the end of the Cold War. Essentially. Right. Yeah. Given its strong anti-colonial bent, communism understandably was enticing in China. So one of the one of the things that was a problem in a place like China or lots of colonial places, even though China wasn't strictly a colony, it wasn't officially a colony, but it, you know, it was under the thrall of lots of foreign powers. Mm hmm. Is that even if there was con- there were countries that were on paper anti-colonialist like the United States, they're not going to support independence movements Mm-mm. because it's going to piss off other colonial powers, right? Yeah. Uh, and this even happened during the Cold War. So, but communism has no such problem. Communism <laughs> and Russia, yeah. they're happy to uh, support any independence movements, any rebellions because it weakens colonialist powers, it weakens capitalist powers. Yeah. In 1918, the first communist study group was formed at Peking University and included a 24-year-old named Mao Zedong. Now, Mao Zedong um, essentially learned about communism, but as time went on, he would form a fundamental rift in his view of Mm -hmm. communism and the future of China than Soviet Russia, Mm. Stalin, the rest of the Communist Party in China, yeah, basically everyone but him and the people he recruited. So it evolved with him. It evolved with him. But so and let's talk about. Did he attend Beijing University at the time, or no? I think he, he, he just was went just to there the for the study group. group. Yeah. Okay. So again, you know, Mao's life rather complicated, but um, mm-hmm. Mao came from a relatively wealthy family for peasants. They were they would be considered rich peasants. They had. Lots of other peasants working for them. They had a big farm. Yeah. So Mao had an education, but he got enticed by communism. And, you know, so he traveled. He had the money to travel. I think he got a job as a librarian. Anyway, um, so, but how communism is supposed to work, um, and I will say that Marxists have a thousand splinter groups that all hate and sometimes murder each other. <laughs> so while I'm going to give you a common... The inter- infighting. Infighting, yes. So I'm going to give you a common interpretation of how this is all supposed to work. Okay. And there's going to be those that disagree. So the, the standard communist uh, line on how a revolution happens um, is this. is you have First, you have a society of kings and nobles and peasants. And uh, essentially, um, you have peasants that start to get rich because of proto-capitalism. And while they get money, they have no political power because all that's held by the nobles and the king. So they essentially then overthrow the nobles and form some sort of a republic or democracy or an oligarchy. Yeah. So that would be the United States. That would be uh, France. France. That'd be England. That's the sort of situation mm-hmm. that needs to happen. So broadly speaking, Marxist literature envisions two revolutions. These revolutions will more or less happen naturally and arise from pressures in society 
created by inequalities of wealth and power. Hmm. The first is when the bourgeoisie, in this context, merchants, factory owners, rich commoners, overthrow a system of noble privilege. This ushers in capitalism, and eventually so much wealth accumulates in the hands of capitalists that you have an entire class of people who do not work and subsist off of owning the means of production, yeah. much as nobles lived off the labor of the peasants that tilled their lands in mm-hmm. earlier times. Yeah. Now, the reason you need this first revolution to happen is because in Marx's view, workers are going to be professional, educated people Mm -hmm. with the ability to form a complex society. They will understand how they're being exploited and how to form a better society. Yeah. And in Marx's view, peasants essentially aren't there. I mean, farmers, farmers, day laborers. Yeah. They might not be literate. Mm. You know, they don't have a a class bond. They can't form unions. They can't form unions. (laughs) They're tied to the land. Yeah. He, you know, and this is sort of a class because Marx is middle class, right? He's basically bourgeoisie, right? They're not poor people. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, that is a bit of snobbery that peasants are essentially incapable of this sort of um, revolution. To participate or start a revolution. Yes. Yeah. So the problem with China and Russia, but that's a whole different topic, is that it never had the first revolution. There were no <laughs> masses of workers who could read and write and understand technology. The literacy rate in 1920 was perhaps 25 to 30 percent. In China. In China. Yeah. While China had been through several revolutions, the vast majority of people were rural, unmechanized farmers. These farmers worked in villages that were not far removed, if removed at all, from villages a thousand years ago. Hmm. Um, In a classical Marxist theory, these peasants would not be able to fully understand communism or self-organize into a dictatorship of the proletariat. Okay. So Mao thought, though, this is a positive. (laughs) (laughs) Mao thought... How is it a positive? Well, A, probably because he's a peasant. But Mao thought, this is great because these peasants don't know anything. Okay. They don't know anything bad, so they're a blank slate. We're gonna he can t- educate them. We're going to educate them. In his way. In his way. Okay. They're not corrupted by materialism. They're tough. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they're not corrupted by materialism. They're tough. They don't have any, I don't have any ideological competition. Hmm. And they're angry. And there's a lot of them. Okay. So he saw an opportunity. Really. He saw an opportunity. Yeah. And, and in, in retrospect... It's kind of obvious, okay? <laughs> so uh, I know, but that's the like the mandate of the heaven. Oh yeah, but now we'll, you we'll, say it's we'll, obvious. We'll talk about it, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so he thought we can start from scratch with the peasants. Mm-hmm. China needs communism now. If all China has was peasants, we're gonna have a peasant revolution, mm-hmm. uh, not a rebellion, Cherry, but a revolution. Mm. So Mao wasn't the only communist in China, though. No, he was one of a bunch. He's the later comers too. He wasn't yes. The- yeah. And he wasn't the only nationalist. Almost everybody was involved with communism in some way because the governments in China at that point would take help from anybody who would give it to them. Including Soviet Russia including and Including Soviet America. Russia and America and whoever else. Nazi Germany, right? Yeah. Um, Very contradicting um, yeah. bad buddies. <laughs> yes. But. So Sun Yat-sen, the original overthrower of the Qing dynasty, Stabs in the back by Ren Shikai. He would take help from anyone he could get. Mm-hmm. And he was involved with Soviet advisors and the nascent uh, CCP, what would become the Communist Party of China. In the early 20s, they had an alliance against their mutual enemies, landowners, warlords, and imperial powers. Mm. Uh, however, his death, and yeah, and just a side note, so Sun Yat-sen, not, not remembered now as like an, as like an ardent communist, but his ideas were fairly big he was huge on land reform Mm -hmm. and all this other stuff yeah but anyway his death in 1925 would lead to a split between rival visions of china's future on one side was his right-wing militaristic successor chiang kai-shek and the other was the ccp the communist party of china and really mao wasn't really all that much at the center of power at all he was just a dude yeah so while some members of the ccp all um, wish to focus on the workers of large cities like Shanghai, yeah. Mao was only focused on the peasantry. Yeah. The KMT was too well connected with criminal organizations in the city. Yeah. And he found the workers there to be too corrupt and too lacking the requisite revolutionary passions. <laughs> so They've been spoiled. Yeah, they've been spoiled, right? And, and this is a thing that you'll see, especially early on, is, is that um, the, C- the communists would try and organize labor unions. They do all these things in these cities. 
Um, people weren't that motivated. People weren't right? that motivated, you know. So sure, you can organize the labor unions, but Chiang Kai-shek would just get in with the gangs. Because <laughs> um, he did, yeah, yeah. Because these these port cities, these industrial cities, had huge criminal enterprises, and they all had guns. I mean, they're basically almost like banded armies. Mm-hmm. So he would just get them to crush them. Because technically they were originally on the same side, and then he sort of betrayed them. His disregard for the party line eventually led him being expelled, but he simply ignored them and formed his own microstate, mm-hmm. perfecting his. That's te- a history we do not talk about today. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Perfecting his technique of essentially murdering landlords and redistributing the land. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is, is like you know, so what Mao did. Obviously, the peasants are there, so that's easier. But it's kind of harder in a way because if you're the CCP, you can negotiate with a labor union, right? It's already a structure that's there, right? That you can try and get on your side. But Mao was just, would start from scratch, right? He would just, he formed his own governments. He formed his own armies. Yeah. You know, he, he was had, a real grassroots. He was real grassroots, but, but he yeah. had the advantage of, um, you could just take a landlord and shoot them and then uh, redistribute the land and people like that. Um, yeah. So this technique was the power and weakness of Mao. He had no allies, no one to whom he was beholden. Chiang Kai-shek often needed to appease others, from warlords to foreign powers to feudal landlords. Mm -hmm. Like a Chinese emperor of old, he relied on existing power structures to function. Yeah. Whereas Mao just ripped them up and left new ones in their wake. And, you know, it didn't go very well for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is the famous quote by Mao, and I, and I, I love it. I love this quote by Mao. I don't love Mao. Obviously, he's a bad person, but I love this quote by Mao. So he said, revolution is not a dinner party, nor an essay, nor a painting, Mm -hmm. nor a piece of embroidery. It cannot be so refined, so leisurely and gentle, Mm -hmm. so temperate, kind, courteous, restrained, and magnanimous. A revolution is an insurrection, an act of violence by which one class overthrows another. Yeah. So Mao, you know, Mao would you know, tell somebody like Bernie Sanders, like he's an idiot. He's like, you know, are, are we doing communism here or are we not? Right? Like, yeah. you know, either we're... Everyone in America who complains that Bernie Sanders is just too crazy. <laughs> yeah. Mm-mm. No. Mao's like, let's own what we're doing. Yeah. We're going to kill an entire class of people, essentially. Yeah, that's how we... Yeah, we don't need to convert them. We don't no. really need to convince them. We're not going to talk it over. There's we're no negotiation. Gonna, we're not going to outvote them. No. We're just going to kill them. We're just going to... Or, or, you know, imprison them. Take... You know what I mean? But we're just going to do it because we're stronger. Yeah. There's no negotiation. There's no trickery. There's no sneakery. We're just going to get there's it done. No, there's no concept of, um, you know, uh, ownership of, no. of, of property. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so Mao continued to fight with the Soviet influence Central Party Committee throughout the entire th- throughout the early 1930s. Yeah. Who continued to disagree with his ideas on revolution? Mm-hmm. Eventually, Mao took full control during the Long March, a period where communist forces broke out of KMT encirclement and traveled to a mountainous region of northern China. Out of perhaps 80,000 that set out. Less than 8,000 remained after the journey of a year. Yeah. But they were incontestably Mao's 8,000. I know. It's crazy. That's a 90% loss casualty rate. rate. No, but Cherry, you know, um, you're forging a sword, you know? You, you know, you got to beat out the impurities. It's one of the must-learned lessons <laughs> of how the Long March, yes. you know, was, was the testament to the spirit of the, of the Chinese country and the people. Yes. Well, and I think it's interesting because obviously, so they set out all the communists, basically, so Chiang Kai-shek was like, we got to get rid of these communists. So, you know, and this was the whole thing. The Japanese were biting off pieces of territory and he just ignored them because he was focused on the communists. And yeah, so all the communists had to escape north or get killed on this long march. Mm -hmm. You know, you're left with 8,000 people, more or less, that you can trust implicitly because otherwise they wouldn't have done it, right? I mean, I mean, it was like a year. People could have just snuck off at any time. Yeah. So, you know, you have forged this kind of implement and mm-hmm. then you can go and, you know, send those people out. So from then on, Mao's view of peasant revolution was the dominant one. And his techniques of people's war and violent land reform would continue to rot away the power of the KMT from within. Yeah. Perhaps his greatest coup was getting Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalists to begin open warfare with the Japanese. By 1945, Mao basically did some shenanigans and essentially 
um, by hook or by crook. <laughs> okay. Put Chiang Kai-shek on the spot yeah. to fight the Japanese. I'm yeah. like, oh, we'll fight them together. But by 1945, KMT forces had fought almost a decade of grueling battle against the Imperial Japanese Army with the CCP stronger than ever. The People's, the People's Army stronger than ever. Unable to get foreign troops to assist, Chiang Kai-shek found himself the master of China's rich, burgeoning industrial cities, while Mao controlled the countryside. However, in the end, the peasants won, and in 1949, the new China was declared. So now, while Mao's army was certainly peasants, what of Mao himself? Uh, While his father started off extremely poor, years of frugal living and good business decisions meant that Mao was born into a family that was relatively wealthy by rural standards. Uh, Thus, it is a strange irony that had the Red Army come across young Mao's family, he would likely have been re-educated or killed as the son of a landlord. Yeah. So. Well, okay, no. The son of the landlord would wage the war against his own father. Yeah, until the Cultural Revolution. And kill the Cultural Revolution. And then it became like, you know, it wasn't enough that you had killed your father. No. It's in your blood. It's in your blood. Yeah. Yeah, and so the strange irony of the whole situation of of communism, this is just a side note, that communism is really supposed to happen in powerful, industrial, modern nations. Or at least that was the theory. Yes, right? So they thought like, oh, it's going to happen in England, it's going to happen in France, it's going to happen in Germany, it's going to happen in the United States. Mm -hmm. But it's only really happened in societies with huge peasant populations and you know that aren't industrialized i mean china was is the biggest example of that right and they tried it with the workers and it didn't work because there's not that many of them yeah and i mean mouse this strategy of you know trying it with the peasants build Mm -hmm. a real grassroots movement from the countryside wasn't a popular one to begin with like you said yeah right and he really had to sort of prove himself in a way well and if you think about it right um so obviously mao is rich by peasant standards his family but he was still a peasant. Yeah. And the vast majority of people studying in these communist study groups, going to these classes, they're not peasants. Mao doesn't speak another language, never went to France like Joe and I did. Yeah, right. Or Japan like, like Sen san did. And the people in the Communist Party, from what we can read today, yeah. is that they were sort of snooty against him, right? Oh, yeah. And But through a lot of power struggles, I would say, yeah. uh, Mao had came to power was perhaps too much help on Joe and I, but also it's through this peasant army he's built for yeah. himself. Uh, and I think it's, I mean, to a certain extent, right? I think Mao was completely, was completely right in one extent, which is like, there's this concept of that the peasants, the peasants won't be able to understand or they won't care about the revolutionary doctrine and, and the, and the communism that they're just going to look out like, oh, we're going to get some land. We're just in it for ourselves, right? But I think they they really seem to understand it. Like if you look at the Red Army, they really seem to believe it. And I think ironically, uh-huh. you get to the Cultural Revolution and you get people who've grown up in it. Yeah. And they have a much more, I don't know, they don't have as quite a magnanimous view as the original kind of peasants Mao recruited. The people in the Cultural Revolution? The yeah, well, guards? I'm, well, I'm just thinking about, yeah, like, you think, like, because um, American POWs really had nice things to say about the, about the Chinese uh, in POW camps and stuff, right? But, but they the, were perhaps extra nice to them. Because, I know, I know. As a propaganda, for propaganda reasons. Because they really thought, like, we got to spread the revolution. Oh, yeah, you were saying, okay, I, I get what you're saying now. Yeah, that, yes. they're, that they're true believers. Like they were, yeah, oh, no, of course, yeah. Yeah. And... Some of these people, after 1949, decided to that it's time to build the country. You know, not all yes. of them were like the revolution. The fire of the revolution is going to keep burning yeah. until the end of the time, like Mao was. Um, yes. And yeah, so not everyone who had this vision necessarily had the same exact vision like Mao. No. But the part where... And you can teach peasants to be political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and he did. And obviously that had some... <laughs> Bad ramifications in certain things, but I yeah. think it uh, it is interesting, right? Mao is, out of any of the people we've probably talked about in any of the peasant revolutions, mm-hmm. Mao is probably the best at revolutioning <laughs> out of any of them <laughs> as, yeah, a, sure. as a skill set, right? Like if you dropped Mao down in the, in the Yellow Turban Rebellion, they probably would have won. 
right? Like he's good at it. Yeah, well, didn't didn't we were talking about how you were saying, oh, if he he was like in jail or yeah. something, and he would probably talk the guards, yeah, into letting him into out, into letting him out, and the guard would join the revolution. <laughs> yeah, and there are just some people who are just that's what they do, right? Yeah, and obviously one of the problem then is that that's all they want to do. Yes, like all the time forever and then the, until the, it's the, time to figure out like how, how to, do we build a country how do we build railroads and yeah exactly and people around him those people who might have gone through the revolutionary times with him yeah they did this because they want an opportunity to build a country yes which they set out to do afterwards and only mao was like no <laughs> <laughs> no we're, we're the revolution a permanent revolution yes is not over Yes. And um, uh, is America communist? Is Japan? Yeah. Like, no, we're not done. Yeah, we're not done here. We yet. need to recruit more people to my communism school so they <laughs> yeah. can be sent home to more babies, more soldiers to, to start. Yeah, exactly. So. But anyway, yeah. that is um, and that's an argument also for why the communist revolution is a, is a peasant revolution instead mm-hmm. of a workers revolution. And that's really kind of one of the main differences between when people say Maoism versus communism why it has its, it's own. It's not exactly the same. It's not exactly the same, no. Yeah. Well, that was four more revolutions. So that's our top 10. That's top a, eight. Top eight. I cannot count. Yeah. Top eight selections yeah. of Chinese peasant rebellions. There's a lot more smaller ones that are interesting. Yeah, we might do some, uh, we might do some supplemental ones. Sure, yeah. We could do top four Taoist rebellions. <laughs> or just do an episode on Taoism. Or do an episode on Taoism. I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> We're all students of history here. Yes. Hopefully you enjoyed that. And we'll be back soon with more episodes. We have some episodes on some modern topics coming up. We try and have a mix. If there's any topics you would like to request, you can go on our website and, uh, uh, well, and email us. Well, you can't go on our website. Well, you could email us. I was going to say we don't have like comments on our No, website. you go on our website to email us. Or you could, you could, or you could uh, you know, that. leave us a review on Apple Podcast or, or wherever you're listening to your podcast at. If they let you do a review, uh, it will be great to Unless hear from you. Unless you don't like it, then don't review it. No, we, no, we, no, we no. want constructive no, 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 no. criticism. If you don't like it, tell us on Twitter. <laughs> but leave a five-star review. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, with that said, thank you for listening today, and we will see you next time. All right. Have a nice day.